big news, because we had so much fun at our last live show, we're doing it again. That's right. We're going live again, but this time we're going to the Ripped Bodice in Brooklyn, which is an absolute dream come true of a location. This show is going to be part of a larger romance festival being put on by Fish Market Theater Company. And I'll give you details about all of the awesome events that they'll have going on that weekend soon. But for now, head on over to the ticket link in the show notes and get your tickets for our performance, which will be on March 9th at 7.15 p.m. Eastern Time. We don't have streaming set up quite yet, but we're working on it because we know a lot of you aren't in New York. But if you are or if you can get here, we hope that you'll get your tickets and come join us because it's going to be a blast. Hey, everyone. Before we begin today, we want to give a huge shout out to our patron, Janae, who upgraded her pledge. Thank you so much for your continued support. If you want access to things like our Discord community, occasional outtakes, bonus episodes, and all sorts of good stuff, head on over to patreon.com slash podandprejudice. Now, we've got a long episode for you today, so we are just going to dive right in. Please enjoy this week's episode covering the 2009 Emma miniseries starring Ramala Garai with our guest Sophie Andrews, a.k.a. Laughing with Lizzie. This is Becca. This is Molly. We are here to talk about Jane Austen. We are here specifically to talk about Emma! Listeners, if you're new here, I, Becca, have read many Jane Austen novels and watched many adaptations of her novels to the screen. And I, Molly, have never done that before, but I'm doing so for the first time through this podcast. If you want to hear Molly read Pride and Prejudice or Sense and Sensibility for the first time, you can listen to seasons one and two of this podcast respectively, but that is not what we're doing here today. No, today we are talking about Emma 2009, episode four, and we are joined today by Sophie, who you may know from Laughing with Lizzie on Instagram. Hello, Sophie. Hello. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for coming. Yes, we're we're amongst Austin International royalty here. Do you want to tell the people a little bit about what you do with Jane Austen on the internet? <laughs> royalty? Is that just because I live in England? Is that, is that <laughs> how I... Um, also, I so wish I was where you were, Molly. I so wish I could go back to having not read and watched all the adaptations. Just having that joy again of watching it all or reading it for the first time. It is pretty magical. Um, yeah. So my name's Sophie and as you say, I'm from, from Laughing with Lizzie. So my relationship with Jane Austen has been fascinating um, and very unexpected, taken twists and turns, and I feel like I've been very fortunate. I think it, for me, it stems back to, like many people, studying Jane Austen at school. We were doing Pride and Prejudice for our exams when I was about 16, and I hadn't really been a reader before that, but I had seen some of the adaptations. My mum had showed them to me when I was growing up. And so I was intrigued, the fact that we were going to be studying it. And I, I read it over the summer and I read it in like two weeks, which for a non-reader of an Austin for the first time was pretty quick, really. Um, my mum couldn't get over it. I had my nose in the book. She thought that was uh, very strange. And I don't know, something just clicked. Something really spoke to me about the story. And I really enjoyed studying it at school. I would stay behind after all the classes to chat to my teacher, who was also a big Austin fan. And then I started reading all the other ones, looking into all the adaptations. And then I got online and found that, oh, look, there are actually loads of other people out there that love Austin as much as I do. Because I think at the time I felt very on my own with this. I think because like 
as a small class, no one else in the class at least admitted to um, enjoying it anyway. I think secretly some of them probably did. <laughs> so then I found this amazing online community and started chatting to people all over the world. Uh, one person in particular, she said, oh, you've got, you know, so many opinions and things to say about Jane Austen. You should start a blog. And I was like, oh, so I don't know. Well, how do you do that? I've no idea. Um, so she set me up. She came up with the name. I can take no credit for even my own name. <laughs> and then I started blogging on there. Then I eventually decided to go onto social media and join up, you know, with a Facebook page. And again, was meeting all sorts of people. And as I was sort of starting to gain followers on there, we were approaching her 2017 bicentenary, where there was just a lot of publicity and attention on Jane Austen as it was 200 years since she died. And she was going onto our £10 banknote and... There was just a lot going on that year. And I was just lucky, I think, that I happened to be 21, 1 and 20 <laughs> in that year. And I had gained a little bit of a, a reputation. And I was asked to be on a BBC documentary that year about Jane Austen, sort of fan culture and, you know, the way people still are celebrating her 200 years on. Off the back of that, I some publishers contacted me and asked me to write a book. Uh, so a year later, uh, my book, Be More Jane, came out. And then a year after that, my second one, Be Your Own Heroine. And then by this point, I just about got onto Instagram as well. My my best friend, Abby, who helped me out with just about everything, um, Austin, she was like, well, what are you doing? How are you not on Instagram yet? Come on, get your act together. <laughs> get on Instagram. I was just still stuck in the dark ages on Facebook. And so she got me all set up on Instagram. And that is now my, my primary platform where I've got quite a few thousand followers on there now. And it's just amazing to, to be able to share my, my Regency adventures with people all around the world. Um, I'm very grateful people enjoy seeing what I get up to. And I think it's really fun to see other people doing similar things, how they do it, you know, like across the pond for you guys. And in, you know, all, all far reaches of the, the world, it's amazing how far her legacy and her sort of just how much people love her and how worldwide that sort of love is, really. So, yeah, I've been I've been extremely fortunate in the uh, opportunities that have come my way and that people enjoy following my my silliness online, really. <laughs> That's so amazing. That was such a journey. I loved that. Yeah. <laughs> it's quite a journey. You do like costuming and stuff too. Like where you dress up in Regency garb and, and stuff. What inspired you to start doing that? So I started the blog when I was 16. And then, so that was in 2012. I went to my first sort of in-person Austin event, not in costume, in 20, 2015. So a couple of years after I'd done the blog. And I think... By this point, I'd seen some people in costume and it'd been, you know, on my radar that, oh, how fun would it be to have a Regency dress? And so then I thought, well, you know what, let's just for the next next event and my first Jane Austen Festival in Bath, the big annual one in Bath that happens every year, I wanted to have a costume. So with my sort of um, Facebook page, I was getting ideas and suggestions of where to go and I met a fantastic seamstress called Sarah Marshall who um, helped me out with my first outfit and you know made my first dress and Spencer and everything and then I 
it was it was a low budget because it's expensive to get them and I think you do need to start somewhere and so you know all my accessories just came from me going on eBay Regency bonnet <laughs> and hoping for the best and there's a surprising amount of there was a surprising amount of things out there that you could pull pull together an outfit and oh the first time I put it on I could still remember it was very it felt very surreal it was a very special moment and I think the reason I wanted to go all the way into the costuming is one you know it's just fun and the the outfits are beautiful when you see them in the adaptations for me another major part of my sort of journey with Austin is she's very much an escape for me um has been for years and and, and still is I suffer from various health conditions such as, well, big one is fibromyalgia. Currently now I've got long COVID too. And um, so back when I was first poorly, when I was 17, Jane Austen was such solace and I could just jump into the novel and pretend I was Lizzie Bennet for a couple of hours instead of Sophie, who was just going to endless medical appointments. And, you know, the real world was a little bit rubbish at the time. So I think that idea of escapism adding in the costuming just made it even more of an escape I suppose if I could get into a different dress and put my hair up take my glasses off and just really you know almost pretend I'm someone else I think it really just kind of went along with that and is why I, I suppose threw myself into it quite so so fully because it was so vital for me at the time. Yeah I think I, I can relate to that and I think a lot of other people can relate to that. Austin's work forever and always feels comfortable. It feels homey. It feels safe. And I think that a lot of, I, I mean, I know our, a lot of people in our community feel that way as well. It's a special community, I think, for that reason. So we're all very pleased to be a part of it. Oh, definitely. I've never come across another author that has quite the same effect in following and that kind of feeling of being comfortable to escape. And I mean, it goes all the way back to, you know, the World War One with you know soldiers reading Emma in the trenches speaking of Emma yeah so it, it's fascinating yeah. how for how you know generations they immediately there's been this comfort in Austin I think yeah there are a lot of other fandoms where the following can get catty and can get defensive and mean and like fight amongst themselves a lot and I feel like Austin the Austin fandom is so nice <laughs> the kindest fandom you will ever find Speaking of the fandom, we do have a few questions that uh, we ask all of our guests about their relationship to Jane Austen. You just answered the first one, which was, what is your relationship to Jane Austen? So I will move on to the second one, which is, what is your favorite piece of Austen's work? And that can be a book. It can be an adaptation. It can be a song inspired by her work, whatever speaks to you most. I had a long think about this. And... I think for me, I'm going to say my Peacock edition of Pride and Prejudice because it's a very iconic um, cover. If if you don't know what I'm talking about at this point, go and cover Peacock edition 1894. And um, it's just beautiful. It's one of the iconic covers. It's where the whole Peacock connection to Pride and Prejudice sort of stems from. And... I was gifted it for my 18th birthday. So it also holds, you know, a nice memory for me in that sense. And Pride and Prejudice is my favourite novel. So it's very much the sort of pride of my collection, I think. And I think it's just a 
beautiful, beautiful cover. I love that. And also, I should say, I have a print of that cover on my wall in my living room. <laughs> love it. I have a, a wallet that has that on it um, from <laughs> Well Read. Yeah, no, it, it is so iconic and you just it pops up everywhere. T-shirts, tote bags. Uh, yeah. And it is it is beautiful. You can absolutely see why. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, third question, which Austin character do you relate to the most? Surprise, surprise, Elizabeth Bennett. She is a great person to relate to. <laughs> um, having spoken about Pride and Prejudice so much, and in case you hadn't guessed from Laughing with Lizzie, it's not my name, which many people think it is, which is fine. And I will answer to Lizzie when people call out Lizzie. I'll answer. It's okay. In fact, I sometimes will answer more to Lizzie than Sophie in the Regency uh, situation, apparently, as my, my friend has pointed out to me. She's called out to me several times and I haven't answered until she's used <laughs> Lizzie, apparently. So um, I think, so Pride and Prejudice was my first. I already knew I loved the story from having watched an adaptation when I was younger. And I was pretty certain that Lizzie was going to be my favourite heroine and she remained my favourite and the one that I could relate to the most as I read the other novels. I think for me her obstinate headstrong spirit is just fantastic when you're you're reading it and seeing the way she stands up for herself and stands up to people around her sort of going against what should should be expected of her in sort of society's eyes the fact that she didn't she didn't really care about that or to an extent of if she felt like someone was doing her wrong, she would stand up to herself. It's not like she was going out the way to be, you know, be a rebel. But when when needed, she didn't shy away from standing up for herself or her family or anything like that. And I think that's a really admirable quality and I think is, yeah. is an important quality to have today as well, especially as a female. I think it's it's she's she's a great role model, I think, still today. Truly a 21st century woman in the 19th century in many ways. And then finally, our final question is, what is your hottest Austin take? This is something about the Jane Austen canon that you feel strongly that may not be the popular opinion. Definitely isn't the popular opinion if all the news articles and everything were to go by. But I actually really like the Persuasion 2022. Come at me. <laughs> so we haven't done Persuasion yet. It is our next book. And I have heard horror stories about this Persuasion. So I am so excited that we have a guest on who likes it. So. You'll have to get me back on when you've watched it and I will come on and defend it. Because I think oh, I have so many, I honestly have so many opinions on it. I, I was actually fortunate enough to work with Netflix a little bit um, towards the end of it when they were marketing it and got to know a little bit more about some of the reasons to things and various things. And I think it gave me a further insight into it. And and what, when I watched it, I, I could see what, what they were going for, choices that they made. I knew that there were going to be Austin fans were like, what is this sacrilege? But I think, I also think it got an unfair trial. I think people were hating on it just when a like 30 second trailer came out. And I think mm. that's a little bit unfair. So, yeah, but this is a whole other podcast. You have to get me on again. <laughs> Absolutely. Because, yeah, no, I, I really enjoyed it. Oh, so hyped. That's now like ruminating in my head. I'm off in season four of the podcast already, which now I guess means we have to pull ourselves back to season three of the podcast covering Emma and the final episode of the 2009 miniseries starring Ramala Garai and Johnny Lee Miller. Before we get too deep into it, Sophie, did you have any thoughts on this miniseries? 
I absolutely love it. I think it's brilliant. I think it's very well done. The casting is spot on. I, I don't think there's any weak, weak point in the casting. The story, because it's a mini series in a similar way to the Pride and Prejudice yeah. 1995, therefore the story is, is really pretty accurate. In, I think as much as you're going to get from any televised adaptation and the costumes, the music. Yeah, no, honestly, it's, it, it is my go-to. It's my go-to, Emma. Yeah, I think it's going to be my go-to as well. It's just so good. I love it. Yes, this is far and away my favorite Emma adaptation. We have watched three now, but I, I will say this one just like, I don't know. I don't think you can top Rommel Garay's Emma. I think she's perfect in the role. I think she gets the good balance between being that kind of spoilt and just having everything her way throughout her life um, girl to, but I think she's still likable. And I know that's very difficult balance to get with Emma. Um, And, you know, some people hate Emma. I love her, but a lot of people hate Emma as a character, but I think Ramala Gari really gets it right. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. She's amazing. So I guess we should just dive into it. This episode starts out with the strawberry picking at Donwell. And my first thought as we began, I was like, oh, no, I forgot that this is what's going to happen in this episode. We're going to have to deal with Box Hill. I know. Devastating. Every every single time. It's just like you get the strawberry picking, which is on its own, just a lovely scene. But you're like, oh, God, I know where this leads. It's heartbreaking. It really is. So Knightley has prepared everything for Mr. Woodhouse. And this is something that happens in the book that I haven't yet seen in an adaptation. So I was really happy to see him like preparing Mr. Woodhouse's little seat by the fire with all his little knickknacks to look at. And Emma is like, you've prepared everything so well for our day. I think generally throughout throughout the series and you see it a lot in episode four, just um, Michael Gambon as Mr. Woodhouse won perfection. So good. Mm-hmm. But also I think the little scenes that you see between Emma and her father and also like Knightley and her father and Emma, I think just, and for example, what you've just spoken about with him getting out some things for him to look at at the picnic, I think they really highlight those relationships and the situation with his father really well. Absolutely. For sure. So Every time Emma walks past Knightley in this first scene, you see him like he's watching her so intently and then she walks past him and he just looks like panic. Like, oh my God, (laughs) he just doesn't know what to do with himself. Yeah, he really does. I think he's so aware of his feelings by this point. He doesn't really know what to do with himself. He kind of goes back to being a little embarrassed, a little embarrassed teenager almost. Yeah. Then we see Mr. Elton just dragging this donkey along. This is so iconic because like this, there's no way this would have happened, but it's a perfect scene <laughs> because he's just like sweating like crazy, dragging her on this donkey and the Mrs. Elton music plays in the background. And I'm thinking to myself, it, her whole thing is like trying to act holier and then now wouldn't she have servants to drag her on her donkey as opposed to her husband? But the physical gag of it and the misery of Mr. Elton, just ugh, perfection. I think it really sums up their like relationship and like the marriage that he shackled himself into. (laughs) Absolutely. And then we see like her quote unquote picking strawberries and she's just like having Mr. Weston pick the strawberries and put them in her basket. This I this Augusta is really I think she's my favorite. She's so detestable. Just like unbelievably so. She is brilliant. And again, played played really well in this miniseries as well. I think, yeah, it's great with her walking around saying, oh, how I love picking strawberries and 
And then literally everyone else just thought, here you go, here's one of mine, because you're not picking any. (laughs) Exactly. So we learn that she has found Jane a position as governess, and Jane has this look of panic on her face. Like, not panic, but just fatigue. Jane is fatigued. Um, I wanted to call out that I love Mrs. Elton's dress here. I would absolutely wear that dress. I think it's the one with, like, some green ribbing on it. It's beautiful. The costuming is so good. They had to make up for that mesh bonnet she wore in the last episode. (laughs) Yes. So then we get a quick shot of Knightley and Harriet talking, sitting on a bench and Emma walking up behind them, which will be important later, but seems out of place right now. And then we see Emma inside preparing a bowl of strawberries for Mr. Woodhouse. And he's telling her how he doesn't want her to go on her trip to Box Hill. And he's like, I'm pretty foolish, aren't I? And Emma has this really earnest moment with him where she takes his hand and she's like, Isabella and I have always counted ourselves very lucky that we weren't sent away after. And then dot, 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 her mom died. And they have this very just like touching father-daughter moment. And as Emma is walking away, she runs into Jane, who is leaving. And we get the Jane is fatigued scene. I love this Jane. I think she's my favorite thus far. And she just you see the way that this is placed in the in the miniseries, which is how it's placed in the book as well. But there's something about the pacing where we've just seen her learn that she's got a position um, or that Mrs. Elton has found her a position. And we've seen that uh, exhaustion with Mrs. Elton and how she doesn't want to be talking to her. And then she's got this job and then she's like, I have to go home. It just really hits different when she says I've. I will soon be taking care of children. I cannot be afraid. It really places that connection on, okay, she's got the job. She's exhausted from holding on to something and she's running out of time. Yeah, I think you can see the fatigue and also just the fear, I think, in her face. I think you can really see the, well, things are really not going, you know, not, nothing's changing. We're still just keeping this, you know, a, a secret and I can't say anything and I think there's just that fear that I think I am going to have to take this position and I'm going to become a governess. I think she sees at that point no other way for her sort of situation to end. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's a real friend chemistry between the two actors here, um, Emma and Jane, which is rare in adaptations of Emma. They don't usually uh, prioritize that. But there's a charge when she's sort of, this Jane plays this moment sort of, halfway between weary and on the brink and it just breaks your heart every time and uh I think in that moment we're all feeling what Emma's feeling which is sort of surprise and like pain for her and a bit of confusion as well and it's beautifully done 10 out of 10 they did the scene right yeah (laughs) finally (laughs) yeah I think it is a scene that isn't often handled well or correctly I think equally in a minute when when you know Frank Frank comes along as well. I think that whole interchange at Donwell is very well handled and hasn't yeah. really been in any previous adaptations. Yeah. And to your point about it being a mini series, I think I've said this before as we've been covering this, and I'll say it again. I think the greatest beneficiaries of the fact that this is a longer format are Frank and Jane. I think their story actually gets room to breathe and be the actual story from the book. So hundred percent. Also, um, slightly going back to the what you made about the inter- interaction between Emma and Mr. Woodhouse about saying, you know, we're glad that we weren't sent away. I think that's another thing that gets 
really in again it's not quite as accurate to the book because it's not in the way that the miniseries starts before the book and you see little scenes of them as little children but I think that really adds to it and makes you imagine the situation of you know little Frank and little Jane being Mm. sent away and Emma you know seeing it and not being sent away and I think the way that they hark back to that um throughout the miniseries and and in that interaction and how they do very much refer to that and it really makes it I suppose part of Emma's character in why Emma is how she is and then why Frank and Jane are like they are and I think it's really really brilliant that they they give some time to that even though it's not in the book in quite in that an obvious way but I think it's really interesting to see that on screen yeah one of my favorite things I don't remember who said this about adaptations but someone who was adapting something said that they don't want to change the book unless they can make it better and so there are a lot of things that this miniseries does that I think are adding to what Jane Austen gave us I'm sorry was this the creators of the last of us (laughs) About the video game? Yes, it was. Yes, it was. <laughs> Great television program. Um, and they, one of the creators, I think the creator of the um, video game teamed up with the guy who made Chernobyl, who's both of their names escape me. But um, basically, they talked about it. They were both the guy who made the game is very proud of the game. The guy who played Chernobyl is a huge fan of the game. And they were like, we love the game. And we're only going to change the game when we think we can improve upon the game. So uh, and that they do spoilers so but the making implicit references in the Jane Austen novel explicit in this adaptation I think really does a good job of tying the whole story together especially making it feature so heavily in the first and fourth episodes yeah and another thing that it does that I think improves it is making Knightley so um openly a mess and in this next part we were in our discord watch party and I was like did he just really say that Emma walks Jane to the edge of the grounds and Knightley's walking up behind them and as Jane is walking away Knightley comes up and he says I was thinking how at home you looked you might be mistress of this house sir Oh, he said Sir. it. He said it. He said it. And she was like, no, no, no. Like, one is enough for me. You would scold me. I would go to my head if I was mistress of two houses. And he's like, I love you. Yeah. He's like, OK, yeah. I think it's the fact that Emma doesn't really think twice about what he just said and just immediately goes, oh, it's just, you know, our level of friendship and the fact that I look after Hartfield from my dad. Hey, I'll just come and look after John Murphy. And that she thinks nothing more about if there's any further implications in what he just said. Yeah. She's so oblivious. You could say that she's... Clueless. Yeah. Boo! <laughs> um, so she tells him that Jane wanted to be alone and she starts talking about like, oh, well, of course she's exhausted. Her living situation, Miss Bates, blah, blah, blah. She's like going off on her and she sees Knightley kind of looking at her like, mm-hmm. And she cuts herself off and she's like, okay. like I'll stop uh, t- talking like that now. Mr. Knightley does not approve. Yeah, foreshadowing. Then we we get Frank approaching being cranky about the heat. He's hungry. He wants a little beer. Yeah. Someone was like, yeah, he's being a real asshole. No, I was watching this with Mike and Mike was like, yeah, that guy's such a jerk. And I was like, Mike, this is literally how you act when you're hungry and hot. Like you just need like a little snacky snack to be like calm again. And I want to defend Frank here because I do feel like everyone's like, yeah, he's such a jerk in this scene. And he is. But who among us after 
like riding through or walking through a very hot day without any food in our stomach is nice upon first speaking. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true, especially um, with what happened on his walk as well, adding to the emotions. Um, I think generally, which I'll touch on more when we get to to the Box Hill scene, I think the way the actor whose name escapes me interpreted Frank is really interesting and very different to the other adaptations. I think there are, again, you saying about there being more time for Frank and Jane. I think, you know, he's in a way a little bit more villainy in the way that he he's quite whining and stroppy at times. And he really is rude about poor Jane. He really goes there <laughs> with, with, with that sort of charade. And I think definitely more so than we've seen in previous adaptations. And and possibly a little bit more so than we see in the book, but equally, I think, I think it creates an in, because there's the the more the more space for Jane and Frank. I think it does really create more of a roller coaster and an interesting um, story. Yeah, I think I had a lot of feelings about Frank in this, and I'll definitely get more into it when we get to Box Hill as well. But I, I do think that it's fairly book accurate because I do remember being so confused in the book is like why is he being such an asshole. But I think that a lot of adaptations attempt to make his assholery more palatable for modern viewers. And I think it's a weird situation that Jane has written. Um, And I think it's very difficult to at least wrap my head around. And so I appreciate how much they tried to show that struggle in this, Frank. And like you can see he's he's come in. He's like, I just passed. Jane Fairfax and she's walking in this heat it's insane but he looks kind of concerned like why is she walking in this heat you can see all the emotions right you know when you are in that kind of like sort of like ah kind of state you you can't really hide um your emotions and things and you can see the Mm. the anger the frustration but also the sadness and the concern and just everything going on obviously to Emma she's just like oh he's just being a stroppy teenager yeah and I think you're right I think there is a way in which he is allowed in this adaptation to really be as gross as he is in the book and the reason why I think it works is I think because he has already laid on all these different layers of vulnerability in Frank and like reasons why you might be surprised by just how rude and awful he's being in that scene I think that makes it a more colorful, uh, rich performance, just generally. I think he's just really good at playing up the best and the absolute worst parts of Frank Churchill's character. Yeah, he can definitely do the best, definitely. I think at times you're like, yeah, you can 100% see why Emma might fancy him. You know, I'm like, he feels really charming, really sort of outgoing. And you can be like, yeah, you can you can see the attraction. But then when he then is the other end of the scale and you're like, oh, OK. <laughs> totally. Uh, so then we get a nose up shot of a horse eating some strawberries. Um, but <laughs> there are like a bunch of fun cinematography choices in this adaptation that are kind of out of nowhere. And that was one of them. It was just like strawberries, horse's nostrils, horse's face cut away. Nothing else. <laughs> and Frank comes in. Emma's with her father and he comes in with a little snack and his cup of beer and he's like talking about how he wants to travel and I was like okay you never will because you're aunt and it's kind of interesting to see she almost wants to hold on to him also not being able to escape his aunt as like something that they have in common mm-hmm. yeah and then she's like okay well 
it's not Switzerland, but you should come to Box Hill. And she goes, Harriet will be there as if he cares. And then he's basically like, if you want me to be there, I have to be there. In front of her dad. No chill. Absolutely no chill. So then we go to Box Hill. And I liked the transition of Emma looking at the book and seeing the image of Box Hill. And then we get to see Box Hill itself. And I loved that their outfits matched perfectly to the outfits of the people in the drawing in the book. And Box Hill is beautiful. Yeah. I've been there several times. I didn't can't find the tree. I keep looking for that tree that they're sitting next to. Oh. Did you insult any uh, middle-aged spinsters each time you went to Box Hill? There were none around for me to insult. Oh. Otherwise, you know, maybe. <laughs> then if a man would come over and berate me and then I can marry him, that would be great. We'll set it all up. <laughs> I'll have to take a spinster with me next time. Maybe that's where I'm going wrong. Yeah, yeah, that'll be it. You have to invite <laughs> her out and then... <laughs> and then ruin her day. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's how it goes. So it's still hot and Emma, Frank and Harriet are sitting looking at the view and Frank is complaining about how hot it is and Harriet is sneezing. I do want to add here, one of the things I've never seen in another Jane Austen adaptation, which I love here, is like the beginning when Emma's there, she's so happy. She's so excited. She's like, this is amazing. And everyone else is pulling down her mood because mostly Frank is being super sour and She's just literally trying to enjoy how lovely the view is at the beginning before she becomes uh, instigated into poor action. Yeah. It's quite sad as well, in a way, to see her joy. Like, it's lovely, but at the same time, you sort of think, oh, it's so sad that just, you know, going, you know, really not that far from her her village to, to look at a pretty view has just absolutely, like, made her month, you know? I think, obviously, travel was was different then, but equally no one else is quite as amazed by it and the fact that Emma had never left Hartfield before um not Hartfield Highbury I think it's a little bit it really hits home just how sheltered her life has been and I think again that gives a sense of of vulnerability to her and kind of goes a long way to I suppose not allowing her behavior but to explaining the way that she is because he really goes no she she really has just been brought up in this tiny tiny little sphere which she's queen of so she's gonna be like she is and it's very much to do with like her upbringing and I think it's very good how the adaptation does really focus on the fact that it's kind of like her upbringing and her surroundings and circumstances that have made her like like she is because I mean that's literally the first line of the book as well so it it does again it's making the clever line you said about it implicit explicit um I think it really demonstrates that really well yeah totally so they're all hiking up the mountain and Frank is talking about how miserable everyone looks and then they're all like sitting silently in a circle and it is interesting how he went from being grumpy to being like let's make jokes he's trying to stir the pot he's like taking out some toxic energy on everyone around him which Emma translates as, oh, he's having fun, but like feels menacing in the scene. That and also just wanting to upset Jane as well, I think, because they've had their argument. He's like, right, how can I really stick it to Jane as well? And I think it, it he's horrible in this scene. He's absolutely horrible. And it's so sad to see Emma going along with it. It's so hard to watch. It's so hard to watch. He's like just being straight up mean and like, 
I just, I can't forgive him. I know that I go back and forth, and this is kind of what I was <laughs> talking about earlier, but I really go back and forth on Frank Churchill, and I did in the book as well. I was like, oh, well, he's not really the villain. Is Frank the villain? He's not the villain. Am I the drama? I don't think I'm the drama. Maybe I am. Am I the villain? <laughs> he really, like in this scene, he is the villain because, so, okay, before we get there, he's like flirting with Emma very loudly, and there's so much pain on Jane's face and I think at this like that's kind of like okay I'm digging at her you know whatever and then he says that Emma demands to know what they're all thinking of and Miss Bates starts very sweetly listing the things that she is thinking of and uh one of them is how pretty Jane looks and Jane has this cute little like thanks aunt. <laughs> and then Mrs. Elton is like okay well I always keep what I'm thinking to myself and Knightley's like is Miss Woodhouse sure she wants to know what we're all thinking of which is one of my favorite lines. Then Frank asks for the one entertaining, two mildly entertaining, or three dull things. And we're all sitting at the edge of our seats like, please don't, please don't do it. Please don't do it. There's just like, there's no other scene I can think of in a Jane Austen novel that makes everyone so viscerally uncomfortable. Yeah. And it amazed me actually when when I went to see the, the recent 2020 Emma at the cinema Obviously, most people there probably know Emma and have seen them, but they were like, they were gasps in the audience when that happened. It was like, <gasps> and I was just like, oh, it's brilliant. The fact that it still has that impact, you know? Yeah. Well, what's really interesting is in the 2020 Emma, she says it so maliciously. Like, she's like, well, blah, 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 blah. And in this one, she says it like she truly doesn't know that what she said was bad until everyone's staring at her like what the fuck did you just do like she's just laughing and she's like oh ha, 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 ha. definitely more playful she felt it was playful anyway yeah absolutely the way Romola Garai plays it is like this little offhand joke she makes like teasing a friend that is unspeakably cruel and then the vibe shifts in the group and it's like Emma understands that the vibe has shifted but doesn't understand why it shifted and so she's like trying to still have fun and be stupid and silly with Frank. And she's like, why are people so upset? Like, I don't understand. You can kind of see it on her face of her going, what, what was that? What did I just, was that what I just said? Is that really what's upset people? Why? And you can kind of try and see her trying to still like, Frank's still trying to like interact with her. But she's just like, oh, but I'm really confused as to why everyone's now really upset and trying to think through why, what was that really that bad? Why was it that bad? And you, yeah, and you can just see her just absolute like confusion and like the just everything going around her mind like mm -hmm. ah I don't know yeah Jane looks so disappointed in her and because this one makes you root so hard for their friendship that really hits um and Miss Bates of course has tears in her eyes which is devastating because this Miss Bates is just so oh, I love her so much and Mr. Weston immediately makes his uh, conundrum which is very just like read the room my dude uh, it's the ma emma who's perfection emma and everyone's like okay we got to get out of here we're, we're leaving we can't yeah and nightly's like oh well perfection's come too soon and it's like right we're all off now we're all off this is really too awkward now yeah my girlfriend wanted to share that she upon watching this and she's never read the book or really seen any of the other I mean she's seen some of the other adaptations but not necessarily paying attention anyway she knew when he said what two letters mean perfection or whatever she was like I bet it's M and A but she didn't say it out loud she says because she thought it was too dumb a joke 
<laughs> wow, did Mel just burn Jane Austen? I think she burned Mr. Mr. Weston. Weston, not Jane Austen. Jane Austen knows it's a stupid joke. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I liked when they were all walking away. Augusta was like, come, Jane. And Jane was like, mm-mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. Hello, it's Molly from the future hopping in to tell you about a new season of one of my absolute favorite podcasts. Hot and Bothered, hosted by returning Pod and Prejudice guest Vanessa Zoltan, is a podcast that treats romance as sacred. You've probably all already heard of this podcast because in their fourth season, they covered Pride and Prejudice. And now Hot and Bothered is back with a season that is all about romantic films. The first 10 episodes of this new season follow Vanessa as she learns how to critically watch movies by looking closely at the classic 2003 rom-com How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. After 10 episodes, Vanessa will be joined by her co-host, Hannah McGregor, a media studies scholar, author, and podcaster. And together, they'll look at romantic films from Casablanca to Love and Basketball to When Harry Met Sally. The show is already so fun after just listening to one episode, and I cannot wait to listen to the rest of the season. So subscribe to Hot and Bothered wherever you get your podcasts to jump into this new season that's all about romantic films or to enjoy their previous seasons about Pride and Prejudice, Jane Eyre, and a personal favorite, Twilight. Again, that's Hot and Bothered, and it can be found wherever you get your podcasts. Also, this August, Vanessa is leading a pilgrimage to Bath for a five-day trip dedicated to Northanger Abbey. Now, I don't know anything about Northanger Abbey, but even I want to go on this trip. Together, you and 20 other Austinites are delving into the story of Catherine Moreland while immersed in a gorgeous city that features heavily in Austin's life and writing, as you know. So if you enjoy contemplative hikes, immersion in a new city, time away from your regular life, and the chance to talk about Austin with fans from all over the world, which I know all of you do, then this trip is for you. So check out Common Ground Pilgrimages at readingandwalkingwith.com. To claim your spot on the Northanger Abbey trip, head to readingandwalkingwith.com slash northanger-abbey-2024. And now back to this episode. So this is when I start being very anti-Frank because the majority of the group has walked away and he starts berating Jane. Augusta and Elton walk away and he's like, they're such a great couple. Like, he only knew her for a little while in Bath. How many a man has committed himself on short acquaintance and regretted it the rest of his life? Ooh. (laughs) Line from the book. I know it's from the book, but somehow seeing it out loud like it's bad it's a horrible thing to say and I was interested in Jane's performance at the line back because she she says it so gently and I was kind of like she's shown some force in other portions of her performance I was I kind of wanted her to snap back at him a little bit more um I have very few complaints about this Jane I think she's close to perfect but I would have wanted that little clap back that comes after to be a little bit snappier it's in a way a last ditch attempt at this because as we know she then goes back and does accept the position to be a governor and I think it's a last ditch attempt but also as she said she's fatigued she's tired she just doesn't have that energy anymore she feels like she can't say nothing but like it's been going on for months and I think it's interesting that 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 whole interchange which is is awful like it's horrible um but when you then if you're doing it for the first time, you then realize what it actually means when you go back. You're like, oh my word, how? And I think at that point, you can kind of concur with Knightley, like Jane can do so much better, you know? I think at that point, it's really hard to to feel anything nice for Frank. 
Yeah, especially I think that this uh, adaptation really makes it his decision that they've been keeping it a secret. And I know that they're keeping it a secret because of his aunt and his aunt wouldn't um, approve of the match and let him marry her. But it really shows that she's just like waiting around for his aunt to get out of the picture or for something. And she's starting to feel like she never will. And she's kind of almost being strung along. And that's exhausting. And so it just makes you mad at him. (laughs) So Frank starts to uh, go off like, Emma, pick a wife for me, someone who's just like you. And of course, Emma thinks that uh, he means Harriet. And then Jane and the rest leave. And Frank continues to complain about the heat. And Emma is like, I'm I'm going to go look at the view again. And she walks away and Frank is like, no, come back. And she's like, no, I'm gonna, I need to go think about this. So she goes and sits on a log and Knightley comes up to tear her to shreds. <laughs> badly done, Emma. Badly done twice. Just three words. Badly done, Emma. Yeah. You can really see how much this does not bring him joy to do. And I wish they would go into more detail about this later um, when he says, like I knew after Box Hill, because in the book they explain that he means the amount that he was upset that Frank had had that influence on her and was being a bad influence on her. Like that really brought him pain and he realized that like, I love her too much. I need to get out of here so that she can like make her own decisions and I don't like feel pain about it. But um, they didn't really go into detail about that. But that's okay because this is a perfect berating of Emma I think I think he did a great job I think the way Johnny Lee Miller delivers the the classic badly done Emma is he's not shouting it but it has such power and I also think this whole berating scene it it, is really different from their scene in um their fight in episode one about Mr Martin and Harriet I think it's a real different vibe I think while I mean equally you, you could say like similar similarly bad situations because I mean she's interfering with a young girl's life you know that proposal was great and now she you know she's you know insulting a someone that's lesser than her and everything but I think because of the way his emotions have gone on a journey since that episode mm. it's less of a, a like a friend berating a friend to a like a wannabe lover just really upset by her behavior I think there's a real noticeable difference in the way that they play those two because they're they're the kind of two major kind of arguments that we see that Mm. that they have yeah especially the second badly done when it's like a little hushed and he's like how like how could you do this I do really uh, agree with that point I think it, it is a perfect encapsulation of how their relationship changed through the story yeah I think at this point, I think uh, Emma has has realized, okay, maybe I think out of, you know, she's she's stepped away from Frank and she's probably a bit of realization has settled in. But I think she's trying to defend herself, not to defend her behavior, but to Mr. Knightley rather than because she doesn't like the fact that Mr. Knightley is thinking of her this badly. And I don't think she's, yeah, it's not like she's, I don't think to me that she's, necessarily defending her behavior because oh no it was absolutely fine I think it's mainly because Mr. Knightley is so upset absolutely so she's destroyed and she goes home and her dad 
is being so sweet. He's like, oh, was it as spectacular as you'd hoped? And she can't look at him. She's in tears. And he's like, will you be going on another trip soon? And he kind of wants her to say no. And she's like, no, I won't. You can't have too much a good thing. Oh, this whole next section gets me so much. Just seeing, you know, Emma clearly not slept and that incredible shot of the sun coming Mm -hmm. through the window just and the profile and just she looks so tired and then the way that they do it and when she goes into the village to see Miss Bates and just the absolute judgment from everyone because all this kind of gossip gets around very quickly in that kind of village and I think it's done so so well it's so sad Mm -hmm. to watch um I think and it shows that despite Emma's position people people don't like it when you're going to act like that to someone of Miss Bates' position in in society and who's held, you know, pretty dear in in Hartfield, in Highbury, sorry. Well, I was going to ask if you thought that that was real or if Emma's imagining that they're all looking at her like that. Interesting. Because my first thought was that it was imaginative, but because her imagination runs away so often, but I kind of like your thoughts that like people just love Miss Bates and Emma is actually being harshly judged by the rest of the town. I really because like she should be. I, I think it's certainly something up for interpretation and one can read it clearly either way. So I think that both are uh, a great reflection of Emma's very well earned self loathing in this moment. I think it, it may well be it could possibly be a bit of both. I think there definitely would be judgment from the rest of her village because the village is so small because they do, you know, they know they've kind of got to look after Miss Bates because of um, her situation. And they know kind of what should be expected of Emma. And generally Emma is, is a nice person. Like she does go and help the poor and it's an out of character situation really for her to be that mean and so I think it probably was happening. Maybe her mind made it feel worse than maybe it was. And, you know, a couple of looks that may be like, oh, my gosh, everyone's literally talking about me and judging me right now. But I think there definitely would have been some because of how sort of small and enclosed and just village life, really, especially back then. I think it, it would get round very, very quickly. I mean, everyone does like care for Miss Bates. You'd Loads of people like would... You'd hear of many different people giving her baskets of food and they just know they've got to look look after the, the Bateses. And I think, therefore, people would would be, you know, what, what's it like? I know I'm not angry. I'm just disappointed kind of, you know, attitude. Yeah. And maybe a little bit angry, too. I mean, maybe a bit angry. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to draw attention to Emma's messy bun. Like, She's just got like a full on modern messy bun going on. Couldn't be bothered. Yeah, I think she's totally just, I can't sleep. I'm waking up and going, um, she, Miss Bates says how early it is. She's like, you gone, no, I don't want the servants to, I'm just very quickly getting dressed and said, no, leave my hair as it is or whatever. I, I, but I like how disheveled she looks and she looks tired as well. Like, yeah. She, you can really immediately go, yep, she's not slept. And I think it, it it's yeah. great to, to see that it has affected her that much. Yeah, definitely. Because it should, yeah. And so when she gets to the Bateses, we hear Jane saying she cannot bear to see her. And Miss Bates is like, well, hopefully she will leave soon. And Emma's like, Ugh. and she's just sitting there with Mrs. Bates in the living room. And Mrs. Bates is just staring at her. And then we see a letter to Mrs. Smallridge on the table. And Miss Bates comes out and tells Emma that Jane has accepted the position. 
and she was up all night crying and writing letters. And um, this is potentially my favorite quote, but um, I'll just say it now anyway. Uh, she's like, she says she is happy, but I've never seen her cry for joy before. Very sad. And I think it's um, despite what's gone on. And yeah, Miss Bates definitely giving her a little bit of a look, but also she's still so Miss Bates and still so kind and just accepting of what's happened and like maybe in her mind is thinking well maybe I deserve that still I think that she's still really and it's sad devastating be angry Miss Bates be angry (laughs) yeah and Emma takes her hands and she she never apologizes she never outright apologizes for what she said but she takes her hands and she says you have friends in Highbury we are all at your disposal And none of us want you to worry about Jane's future. But she also kind of is saying, you're not going to be by yourself. We're all going to be here to help you. And I think Miss Bates hears that because she's she's crying and she looks at Emma and they have this kind of unspoken apology moment. It feels genuine, though. It does. That is Emma's way of apologizing. And I think her saying, you know, you've got friends, you're not going to be on your own when Jane leaves is very genuine and heartfelt. And Miss Bates knows that. And I think it's a lovely it's a lovely moment. Yeah. And, you know, it just also drives home that even though Mrs. Bates is also there, Miss Bates would would feel alone when Jane leaves because Mrs. Bates is not verbal and is just kind of there at this point. So Emma arrives home and Knightley is there and he is going to London and Mr. Woodhouse asks how the Bateses were, and Emma's like, well, they liked the pies. And Knightley then, you know, of course, sees, oh, she went to apologize to the Bateses. We love that for Emma. He's got um, a lovely look on his face when she realizes mm-hmm. where she's been. He's like, oh, good. <laughs> yeah, and Emma, like, won't really look at him, which I also appreciate because it shows that she's not just, like, doing good for the sake of, her reputation she like really wanted to go apologize she did it before anyone was awake really like she wanted to do it for herself and for them and she says that she reminded Miss Bates that they're supposed to come over the next Friday and she says to Knightley won't you come too and he says he's not going to be back yet it's going to be a substantial trip and before he leaves he takes her hand and he bends down as if to kiss it and her eyes go huge like what is happening And he thinks better of the kiss and leaves. And Mr. Woodhouse is just very unaware of this whole moment. He's like, oh, yes, do, 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 do. And Mr. Woodhouse really just in this episode has my heart. Fine form. It's it's 10 out of 10. Absolutely. Then we cut to London and Knightley is now in London. And we see Isabella talking about how weird Knightley is being. And then we cut back to Hartfield and Mr. Woodhouse is reading a letter from Isabella saying that Mr. Knightley's being weird. And Emma is just like staring at his chair and she's like, I think I want to reupholster this chair. Uh, I'm so used to him sitting in it. I haven't noticed that it needs new covers. And really, she's just trying to forget him and have, you know, erase his memory from the house. (laughs) Then Mr. Woodhouse goes, Emma is to refurbish Mr. Knightley's chair. I mean, he's not got much to write in his letters. So he's like, oh, great. I can put this in the letter. Yeah, it's really sweet. It is um, an interesting moment. And I think it, I mean, she says it herself. She kind of didn't realize or appreciate just how much Mr. Knightley was that in their company. And she's now mm-hmm. gone, oh, he's actually been away for an extended period of time. I'm so used to him being around. And it's weird. Yeah. 
It's weird because I'm in love with him. Hmm. And he also, Mr. Woodhouse also starts writing that Emma has been trying to befriend Jane. And we see this kind of uh, flashback to Emma trying to go over, bring things to Jane and Jane avoiding her, saying that she's too ill to go outside. And then Emma sees her walking through the field and she's like, you know, I'm truly sorry that Jane and I can't be friends. And you can feel that she really is truly sorry. Then we get the Mrs. Churchill is dead montage. So good. Everyone's just so happy that she's dead, but then trying not to be happy that she's dead. It's hilarious. It's just so brilliant. It's like, Frank is free. Well, we're really sorry that Mrs. Churchill is dead. Um, it's just it's just all the all the ways that they're just trying to be like, oh, this is so great, but not because a woman's died. Uh, yeah. oh. It's so brilliant. And it feels very British as well. <laughs> <laughs> it's brilliant. I love that whole scene. Yeah. Um, she says, she says, I am so happy at this dreadful news. <laughs> I love at this point that um, John Knightley in London is very much saying, like, the, the truth is like, well, no one's liked this woman at all ever. Why should we now be sad that she's died? He's very much like, no, I'm not sad. Why should I be? And he's very much, you know, saying it how it is, even though everyone else is trying to say faith. John Knightley is a king. He's great. He's so great. <laughs> and I love, again, because you've got the four episodes, you get a good relationship and you see um, Isabella and John Knightley more in this, which I think is great because they're such great characters. Mm. They really are. I love their relationship in this. They have like a playful energy where they like they nag at each other, but in a very sweet way that I think does them justice. I like in the scene where you say when they're saying that Mr. Knightley's out of sorts. I like when he says about, you know, because he didn't want to go to this dinner and take the, the boys to the park. And he's like, yeah, I think that's a reasonable reply to both of those things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was beautiful. Emma says that Frank may finally do as he chooses. And then we see Frank walking through the town and stops in front of his old house. And we see a flashback of him as a child being taken away from his father in the rain. And we all feel a little bit sad for Frank at that moment. Even in his poor behavior, I think that that flashback does a lot of work to remind us that, like, even though this is a flawed person, he's someone who's been through a lot. I think also at that point, it it kind of brings like an end to that period of his life where he's been taken away and been trapped into this with his aunt. I feel like he feels like, OK, maybe that chapter's over now. And that little flashback is um, like that's sort of how it felt to me. Mm-hmm. I know I've seen some people say that they also think that that whole scene, the fact that he flashes back to this. I mean, do you think Frank has a quite a bitterness towards his father and the fact that he um, sent him away? Mm. I think it's, it's sort of a debatable thing as to what, you know, whether Frank is understanding of what the situation or whether there is a little bit of, of yeah, bitterness with what, what happened to him. That's a good question. I think that um, this adaptation grapples with those questions much more than any other adaptation that I've seen. I think Frank could very well be angry at his father. I see Frank as a character in limbo, one that understands himself to belong certain places more than others. And the the fact that he changed his last name to Churchill from Weston tells me that in in the grand scheme of sort of the emotions of being taken in by your aunt and uncle and then having your life completely dominated by them versus the complete raising of his own class so that he 
enters a new form of society his father could not have given him access to and one that he clearly enjoys through balls and wealth and enough to um, string poor Jane along for a long time so that he could ensure his inheritance. It's tricky to see how Frank feels ultimately about his sort of broken childhood. Well, I wonder, though, I mean... I think that it's not necessarily about his inheritance for vain reasons, but more so that he doesn't want him and Jane to be destitute um, and not have anything. And no. Yeah. I hadn't thought about this before in terms of like whether he enjoys his status. I mean, he does say in the scene where he's being grumpy, Emma's like, okay, like, you're sick of wealth and prosperity. And he's like, I don't consider myself prosperous. And I know that he's talking about Jane and his situation, but I think that he might also, we could read into that another layer of being just unhappy with where he is in life and like feeling torn between two homes and all of that. So it's definitely something to think about. I had never considered that he might be upset with his father, but he might not understand why he had to go away. He was so young. And I think, I mean, a little bit like going back to towards the beginning of it where where Knightley's essentially the fact that he, Frank is meant to keep coming and then it's saying, oh, no, I can't come. And he didn't even come to his father's wedding and all of this. And, you know, Knightley's basically saying mm, a man in this situation, if you wanted to come, he'd be able to come. And I think while there are a lot of constraints with his aunt and he does have um, responsibilities there and she has a lot of power over him, I also think there is some truth to what Knightley is saying in that I feel like if he really, really wanted to come, he probably could. So I think that maybe there is a little bit of just because he doesn't have that relationship with his father, that he doesn't consider it. You know, he comes when Jane's back. Let's be honest. So it's a little bit sad that he, you know, he didn't even manage to make the effort to come to his, his father's wedding. And I know there are circumstances with his situation but also possibly a little bit of a broken relationship there that he doesn't feel that sort of obliged to you know I don't know what I'm trying to say something along those lines (laughs) yeah no I, I think that's a very probable point so then we see Emma running towards Randall's in a panic and we learn that Frank is engaged to Jane and this is where Emma says that she needs half a day to wrap her head around it. And we flash back to Emma and Frank dancing as Emma is like, why did he come amongst us already engaged and act so very unengaged? It's a great question. <laughs> it is a great question. Like, why did he flirt so hard with her? Like, wasn't quite necessary to be quite that over the top. Yeah. Like, he could have just come and not done that and still kept it a secret. But he had to go completely the flip side of of what was actually the situation. And Mrs. Weston spells out all the times that it was almost revealed. She talks about them and we see a flashback to his blunder when they were walking through the countryside and then the game with the Dixon and all of that. And we see the time that he almost told Emma, quote unquote, almost told Emma, but then chickened out. And she clearly is worried that Emma is feeling, you know, some type of way about this and Emma's like don't worry I do not have feelings for Frank and as she's saying this her voice dropped like three registers and she suddenly sounds older like this has aged her 
um, but also that she's matured. I think it's really sad in the scene to see, well, M- Mrs. Weston and also Mr. Weston when he pokes his head through the window, it just how nervous they are and how how upset and angry, but like how nervous they are for Emma because, you know, they were encouraging um, the relationship between her and Frank as well. And I think you can see the pain on her face. Absolutely. Then Emma starts asking how Jane could bear watching Frank flirt with her so much. And she's like, no wonder she's been avoiding me. Of course she hates me. Um, And she starts going off on Frank and she says, badly done indeed. (laughs) It's like, hmm, someone has grown and become more like Knightley. And uh, she says, how could he let her contract herself as a governess? And Mrs. Weston says, well, he didn't know. Jane took the job because she couldn't wait any longer and because of their fight outside of Donwell. But as soon as Frank found out, he came back and threw himself on Jane's kindness, apologized, said they can be together now. And that's when Mr. Weston pokes his head in and Emma's like, "Okay, well, let's just be happy for him, I guess. And then we see Jane and Frank in the middle of the square and they make out a little bit. And then he says, how about a dance? And he like spins her around. And it's actually very sweet. However much this would not have happened in Regent's Sierra, England, it's very sweet. Yeah, I think it's nice to see that they're both relaxed, happy, and they can finally be like, we can find, we don't have to hide this anymore. And I think it helps in like trying to forgive Frank, I suppose. You can see that they are maybe a good couple and they do actually seem happy together, which I think is 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 good. Yeah, they do have a lot in common. Like they have a good basis for a relationship, except for the him being mean to her in public for a very long time. Thing, which I have a hard time forgiving him for, but just a smidge, tiny little technicality in the relationship. Yeah, but if they agreed on, I don't know. I can't. I don't know. I go back and forth on him all the time. <laughs> they agreed to keep it secret, but I don't think she agreed to him being an absolute, uh, absolute insert rude word of your choice, dickhead. Yeah, and completely throwing himself sometimes literally on another woman, like laying in a lap and all that. Mm. I don't think she mm-hmm. quite agreed to that. Yeah. So I do have a hard time forgiving him. But as long as she's able to forgive him, you know, uh, I guess. So Emma goes to find Harriet, which I don't think that they played up enough. The Emma wants to get him with Harriet thing. There's a few moments where it's, you know, alluded to, but I wish it was more present. Yeah, maybe it was. I don't know. I was going to say, I feel like they they made more of an effort than most adaptations do to remind us that she's thinking of this because of uh, the times at Box Hill where she's like putting them together and also uh, saying specifically Harriet will be at Box Hill and then thinking like Harriet will be a perfect like exact match for me if I can set him him up with like an identical person to me like all of those things I think it's usually like oh um, Harriet's attacked she's in love Emma's not going to interfere but she knows it's Frank Churchill and then we don't hear about it again until the reveal. That's true. That's true. I think what they do is quite clever as well. Obviously, with the Harriet and Elton, you know, it's what Emma wants, but also Harriet does actually like like Elton. So you see it, obviously see it a lot more. And then with this one, obviously, there's been the miscommunication that it isn't Frank that um, Harriet's alluding to. So I think because Harriet's not going along with this whole journey, I think it's, it's, it's one-sided, which is what you see and why it doesn't feel so present. And I think the adaptation is quite clever to, while you've kind of got the odd bit where Emma's thinking, oh, yeah, that, that's, maybe that's still going on. You Equally, you then see like Knightley and Harriet and they build the foundations 
for the, you know, what comes out of the, the miscommunication later on. So I think we do see it, but it's done in a different way because there's that miscommunication mm-hmm. between the two of them. Yeah, absolutely. So she goes to, you know, tell Harriet that, oh, no, your love has been engaged to someone else and Harriet is completely unbothered. Shouts to their matching outfits down to the necklace. It's so good. Like, I love the fact that Harriet just slowly starts to completely imitate what Emma's wearing. I think it's so, so perfect for their relationship. It's even down to the mop of hair, um, which I have griped about quite a bit on this podcast. Those curly plumes at the front of Harriet's head. In this scene, they're pinned back the way Emma does her hair. Mm -hmm. It's so, like, subtle but so good throughout the series, the way that she just more and more is like imitating Emma. It's very well done. Yeah, it's so good. The misunderstanding comes to light here where Emma's thinking that Harriet should be upset and Harriet's like, well, I couldn't possibly love Frank Churchill. I don't know how you can misunderstand me. And when Harriet says, well, I wouldn't have thought it possible, but you gave me hope when you said that stranger things have happened. You who have known him all your life, Emma starts to just unravel like we're watching a horror movie come like folding out in front of her she's like oh my god wait what are you what are you talking about you couldn't possibly mean (gasps) Mr. Knightley and Harriet's like well yeah of course and she says she knows this is a surprise and Emma literally scoffs in her face and Harriet says well if he doesn't mind you're too good of a friend to oppose us right and Emma's like us do you think that he returns your feelings and Harriet's like well yeah I think so and we see kind of a flashback of all of the moments that we've clocked throughout the episode where he's showing her special attentions and Emma says well Mr. Knightley is the last man to intentionally make a woman think he feels more for her than he really does and Harriet is so happy she's like oh my god thank you Emma thank you and then Emma tells her to stop talking and leave it's like, no, I can't just go. I can't be dealing with this right now. And Harriet has no idea why. She's just like, okay, bye. It's just the stop talking, really, that that makes me laugh. And also, like, oh, my God, Emma. And Harriet leaves, and Emma turns and says, I wish to God I had never met her, which is a line from the book, but is harsh, especially since Emma hasn't fully at this point started to understand her own feelings so it's kind of like why do you wish to god you had never met her i always wonder with that line whether it's obviously there's the situation right in front of her with knightley but whether there's also just the whole roller coaster that has been her relationship with harriet and the the fact that you know it goes back to like you know she interfered at the beginning and otherwise she'd be married married to robert martin by now and i think it's just encompassing everything and the fact that everything that she's done rather than what Harriet's done, it's all her. And I think it's just everything of just like, oh my word, I have so many ups and downs trying to match make her with this, ruined her actual good chance of Robert Martin, which she obviously refers to with saying, are you sure Knightley wasn't trying to remind you of Robert Martin talking about the crop rotation and just realized that it's ended up in this situation, which is potentially going to affect her. Yeah, Harriet does say the thing in this argument about, um, I I hope I have better taste than to be accused of having feelings for Robert Martin. And it hits so hard, especially because later, like we don't really get to see the way that we do in other adaptations, the reproposal of Robert Martin. So it's kind of like, does she 
feel like she's settling or has she truly made her own choice? Um, which it does feel accurate to the book, but I do appreciate in some other adaptations that we get to see her being like, okay, actually I made this decision because you told me not to go with him and I want to go with him because that's what I want to do. So I feel sad about that a little bit, but it is also a very, well, you're a virgin who can't drive moment. You got to save it. You gotta I know, save I'm it. sorry. Uh, we'll get there. We'll get there. We'll get there. But Harriet, she's created a monster. I think she realizes that she's created a monster yeah. here. Absolutely. She sees herself in Harriet and is like, yes. that's not a good look. Yeah. Yeah. And so that also shows her own personal growth. Of like, wait, I don't like that part of myself. So she goes on this dramatic walk and she's running through all of these moments in her head between herself and Mr. Knightley. And she realizes that if anyone is going to marry Mr. Knightley, it should be her. And she's like, oh, my God, it's too late. And she says it out loud. It's too late or too late, too late. And it's all my own fault, which it is. And I'm glad that she acknowledges that. Then we cut to the Knightleys in London and they read the letter learning that Jane and Frank are engaged. And Knightley has this baby in his hands, like almost at an arm's length. And he's just like, what's what? What? Jane and Frank engaged. And then we cut quickly away to Emma and Mrs. Weston. And Mrs. Weston is telling her that Jane was so mortified. They forgave her immediately. And Emma's just kind of spaced out and staring out the window. And Mrs. Weston's like, are you all right? And Emma says, I am always well. And it kind of hits that she always has to put on a happy face. It's giving Ross in that season nine episode of Friends. I'm, I'm fine. fine. I'm fine. Yeah, I think it does. That, that Emma's expected to be the bubbly, happy one and that she, you know, is carrying quite a lot. And then the way she's looking after her father and she does for her father's sake, for very a lot of people's sake around her, she does need to be well all the time. And, and appear that way. Yeah. Which is hard. Very hard. Absolutely. So here we go. We're starting down the point of no return. This is when Molly ascended. I felt it from like the half mile away that she lives from me. Yeah, I was I put down my phone. I wasn't looking at the discord anymore because I was just staring at the screen. Emma's out gardening and Knightley comes out. And she's like, <gasps> and hides behind a bush. Mike made this point. It's a triangle shaped bush. Yeah. So how was she going to hide? It, she wasn't. She's just standing behind it. And he sees her and she's like, oh, are you mad at me? And he's like, no. <laughs> like, Why would I be mad at you? And he starts immediately going off on Frank and and talking about how terrible a person he is. And Emma's like, no, 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 wait, don't worry about me. I'm embarrassed by how I behaved, but I have not been injured by him. And Knightley's like, Frank is so fortunate. Blah, blah, blah. His aunt opposes his love. His aunt dies, blah, 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 blah. But the whole time he has one eye just closed. He's just winking into the camera because the sun's in his eyes. Very sunny scene. They're both struggling. They're both squinting like anything. Yeah, it's very funny. And Emma says, you sound like you envy Frank. And he says, I do envy him. His secret is out, at least, which is an added line from the book, because I think in the book he just says, I do envy him. You're not going to ask me why I envy him. But instead, he says his secret is out. You're not going to ask me what my secret is, 
which I kind of like because he he so badly wants to tell her in this scene. And then she just says, no, no, I don't want to hear it because she idiots. They're idiots. I love them. Um, yeah. The way she, Emma, like, he's clearly like going to tell her and he's like, no, 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 please, 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 please tell me. It's going to change everything. Please don't do it. Please don't do it. Once you've said it, it can't be unsaid. And it's just mm-hmm. a real like sudden like, you know, tumult of emotions with them. Just because she's like, no, you're going to tell me you love Harriet. Don't do it. I can't hear it. I can't hear it. Yeah. He is like, okay, I will obey you and walks away. To cry (laughs) in his home alone. Yeah. And Emma's like, no, no, no. And she kind of struggles with herself for a minute. And then she chases after him. And she's like, I will hear whatever you want to say as your friend. And he's like, I don't. Stop friend zoning me. I don't want it. Exactly. He says friends indeed. And then he just, he does the the thing. He says it pretty much word for word what's in the book. And it's so good. He's like, okay, I want you to be honest, but have I no chance of succeeding? And then the music swells. It's the theme. Yeah. I love the, the like the staging, just the two of them with Hartfield behind. It just looks... Mm. Beautiful. And I love that Ugh. dress she's wearing. Mm-hmm. Perfect. And she like, you see her start to realize what he's saying and she has tears in her eyes. And his, if I loved you less, I might be able to talk about it more is so good. He says, I cannot make speeches. And then he kind of like sniffs and he says, if I loved you less, I might be able to talk about it more. It's romantic, but it's got that hint of like, it's, it's got the comedy which I think it really yeah. needs that line because it's a funny line. It's really sweet, but really funny. Like, And I think he just gets it spot on. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, so Emma says, can this be true? And he says, you'll get nothing but the truth from me. So what do you think? And his chest is just like heaving. Like he's so nervous. And she says, I find I do not know what to think. But you can see like in her face, obviously, she's just like, oh, my God. I don't know what to think. How did this happen? How did I get so lucky? And then they kiss. We need to talk about the physicality of the scene, though, because the the way after he says, what do you think, that she reaches up on his face and the way he seizes a little, like it's like the force of his like love is like got him frozen in place. And she's like exploring the face of this man she's known forever. And then she just presses her forehead to him and says, I find I do not know what to think. And then the the way it like pans out to that wide shot and you see his hands slowly creep up to touch her hips. And then the slow, like the agonizing pace at which they finally kiss, like the Regency era of like etiquette versus the desire just like culminating in this moment of like, like fresh love. Ah, so good. Such good chemistry between the two of them. Yeah. I think it's one of my top proposals in all the Austin adaptations, proposal scenes. It's just, it's just beautiful. Yeah. Um, We get to see them sitting on a bench um, and he's telling her like his kind of journey of realizing he was in love with her first when Frank arrived in town and then Box Hill. And Emma says, I was talking to Harriet. And he says, I do not mind what we talk of. We can talk of Harriet if we must. Which I thought was hilarious. A really tough look for our girl Harriet, who was like, yeah, he's in love with me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh. Um, but she says she was talking to Harriet about a secret matter of her heart, um, which I do now. I, I'm coming around to. I always am like, why doesn't she tell him? But Becca, you're right. 
Yeah, it would suck for Harriet. Um, it would be awkward. There's no point. You can see now. I can see now because I had to see it performed well. Yeah, no, it it would be it would be mean of her to say it. Like, there's just it's better for Harriet her to hear herself and get over it, and Mister Knightley to not not be aware of it. Yeah, especially because Emma knows that Harriet can get over it because she's now been in love with how many men this year? Three, three. So. She says, I was talking to Harriet about a secret matter of her heart, and then I examined my own heart, and there you were. Never, I fear, to be removed. The, again, the pacing and the way that they, it's so slow. There's also, there's no music at this point in this conversation as well, which I find it's just, just them. It's a very, like, intimate moment, and it's really sweet. And I think all the, obviously, a lot of the proposals generally in the books are... You, you don't have that much dialogue mm-hmm. in a lot of the proposals. So I think they often have to, you know, expand, especially for the for the heroine's responses. But I think they did really, really well in the like the responses that they give Emma to the declaration and in this this little conversation afterwards as well. I think it feels yeah. very in keeping. A hundred percent. Then we cut to Emma storming into Knightley's study. This is so good. She's sobbing. And she goes, you know, I love you and I always will, but we can never marry. That's, That's all. all. Mike what just went, yes, a queen. <laughs> it's so good. The drama. But it's like, again, it's the emotions, her, how torn she is. Like, I really love you and I really want to. But also she's it's the like the absolute love she has for her father. And she's like, no, I just couldn't. I couldn't do it to him. This is what he's been fearing and I can't do it. And I will have to forgo marrying you for the sake of my father. And that's like, that's huge. Yeah. And I think they did a really good job in this adaptation of all of the small moments that we've had between her and Mr. Woodhouse, where he said, like, I hope you never leave. And it doesn't feel the same as it does in some adaptations where he just like wants to hold on to her. He's kind of helpless. And he's just this sweet man who really relies on his daughter for a lot of things. And they're open about it. Like he's lost his wife, his other daughter moved away. And he's like, you'll never know what it is to fear until you have children. And she takes that to heart and she doesn't want to leave him alone. And Knightley says, well, I've thought about this too. I know you could never leave him, but my heart is here with you. So why does it matter where I live? And he says he'll come to live at Hartfield. And she says, you would do that for me. And he says, well, I might walk back and forth a few times a day for my constitution. (laughs) which is a really sweet callback to early in the I think it's in the first episode where she's like well Mr. Knightley only gets his exercise by walking back and forth here so it's a cute little callback to that that is huge like it's such a I mean it would be seen as such a like a you know pride thing like the fact that he's willing to well one move in with your in-laws even today that's hard (laughs) exactly exactly um but you know like it's 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 a really big thing to sort of be not submitting to the woman, but like seating power. Exactly. For for your lady. Um, like big, big, big thing. Nightly with the constant dreamboat behavior. Yeah. Nightly and shining armor. <laughs> yes. That's good. I love it. So they go to tell Mr. Woodhouse and he's stoking the fire and he looks up and he kind of does a double take like, oh, they look like they have bad news. And he's so innocent. I just... I love him so much and we don't get to see the moment which I actually I really loved how they did this they just showed that and then they showed behind Emma's back she's holding her hands nervously and Knightley comes and reaches and grabs her hand and you see that like it's all going to be okay in that moment yeah it's really well done I think you don't I think we don't need to hear that conversation yeah 
Then we see a series of quick cuts to Isabella getting the news and just like crying happy tears. And then Knightley coming and finding Emma in the garden and telling her that he has news that she's not going to like, which is cut to Harriet and Robert Martin's wedding. (laughs) Initiated by Mr. Elton looking horrified. (laughs) Yeah. When he says for richer, for poorer, and he kind of like gives her this look for poorer. And it's like, okay, (sighs) whatever. You know, his like hairdo that he has that going on. I think it gets more and more like puffed up throughout the as he gets more and more obnoxious throughout the series more i'm sure it gets more like fluffy and throughout the series more 2009 tumblr as it goes yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> everyone's there everyone's happy for them and emma and harriet have this moment where they hug and she says i congratulate you on your choice and we're all happy for harriet for finally making a decision on her own then frank comes up to emma and she kind of tells him off a little bit. He's like, you would never have guessed our stories would end like this, huh? And she's like, well, you're not, you know, you're not innocent. Yeah. Um, and he's like, well, I am sorry. And then he looks at Jane and he says, isn't she an angel sent to me on earth? And Emma says, treat her well. <laughs> and he's like, okay, yeah, yeah, I can do that. Better treat her a lot better than he's treated her so far. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. like that they don't let him get off scot-free. Like, they're like, you didn't do so good up to this point, so do better. And he says, I will try my best. Then we cut to the after party and Miss Bates is pushing Mrs. Bates in the wheelchair and Mrs. Bates says, wheel me over there. I want to see Mrs. Weston's new baby. And she's talking again. Miss Bates is like surprised. It's like, what? She's speaking? What's happened? Yeah, she's found her voice. It's just so beautiful because like, Whatever's been weighing on her, it really brings the story to a nice close because we started the story with seeing her upright, seeing her talking and being upset that Jane was going away in the first place. Now we get to see her coming back to herself a little bit. Everything is how it should be. Jane is happy and et cetera. So she feels happy again. And yeah, I think it again, it's yeah. like that full circle moment. Yeah, it's really beautiful. And we get to see Emma and Jane sitting and and Emma says, can we be friends now? And Jane says, I've tried to write to you a thousand times to ask your forgiveness. And Emma's like, don't worry about it. And then Jane looks over at Knightley and she says, so when's the wedding? And they start like gossiping like girls. And Emma's like, my father hopes never. And they start giggling about how she's still going to be engaged when she's 70. And it's really sweet. And it's the friendship arc that they deserve. Yes, it is. 100%. Then we cut to Emma in it's kind of like this beautiful morning light and Emma is wearing this gorgeous yellow dress and she goes to her father to say goodbye because she is going off on her mystery honeymoon and Mr. Woodhouse is crying sweet but sad moment yeah I can't handle it he's like he's happy for her but he's also sad to be losing her and it's just so heart-wrenching um, and we see outside John and Isabella standing there and John's like, all right, so now they get to go off while we protect the chickens. And Isabella's like, listen, we're lucky that they get to go at all. There's a fox about, so it's good to have a man around to protect the chickens. And they have this cute little flirty moment. Or is it a wolf? It might be a wolf. A wolf, yeah. A wolf, yeah. Um, in any event, I love John and Isabella. And then we see Mr. Woodhouse watching from the window and being sad as Knightley and Emma take the carriage away. And they drive off and Emma looks out the window and she sees the sea coming up over the hills and she starts crying happy tears and they go out and they walk to the seaside and we 
see this just like pan out of them on the cliff looking out at the ocean, holding hands, and it's beautiful, and the music swells, and then that's the end of the 2009 Emma miniseries. Surprising her with the sea. So cute. I think the fact that that whole, the fact that she'd never seen the seaside was, was you know, a, a thing earlier on, the fact that that's what he did. Like, nothing fancy. It's literally just, I'm taking you to the sea. But it's so cute. It's so <laughs> sweet. Dreambow behavior. <laughs> it's so cute. It's like such childish glee. It's so, yeah, yes. it's perfect. Just ending on that kind of beautiful, beautiful scene. I think it, yeah, it's perfect. Which brings us to Becca's study questions. Uh, so we ask these questions after we finish any adaptation. Uh, also, give us a little dance party here, Graham. Yeah, we did it. Okay. So <laughs> for the episode, favorite line delivery? I mean, we've already come, we've, we've said several of them that I was trying to narrow down. I think the only one that hasn't been said um, in our, when we were going through it is I love after Jane and Frank are engaged and she's just like Jane Fairfax in just complete like are you kidding me <laughs> like and it's just yeah I think the way that she um says that is brilliant but another I also love the 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 I you know I love you and I never um and I always will but we can never marry that so I still think that's such a brilliant line as well it's so good I have a lot of them, but yeah, we have said a lot of them already. I mean, and of course there's, if I loved you less, I might be able to talk about it more, which of course we've said, but another one would be, hmm, I have to, I'll share two of them. One is John Knightley after Isabella has said like, well, why isn't George going to do this or that or this? And he says, some might say hesitation is quite a normal response to both those invitations. And another one is Emma saying, I am so very happy at this dreadful news. Mm. <laughs> I am afraid I have to give it to a line that I've already said, but it has to be. I find I do not know what to think for me because that moment will be burned into my brain for the rest of eternity since I first saw it. Oh, it's a perfect moment. No notes. <laughs> um, notable changes from the book. So I think this version of Emma, as I've said, it does seem to like ground and more of her flaws, you know, from her youth and actual inexperience with the world and people around her to any like true character flaws. And actually, I think this actually is probably more accurate to the book. So that's actually not a difference or <laughs> addition. But I think in additions in the way that I mean, in the way that they just that they show this with the um like the the childhood scenes and all of, of um, that kind of thing. And I think, again, we see some more of those realisation moments and character growth, which sort of reflecting through that throughout the, the fourth episode. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think for me, in this uh, episode in particular, it's nightly showing his feelings a little bit more, which I suppose one could read into the book, like onto things that happen in the book. Um, but getting to see it, which, you know, by nature of this being a filmed adaptation, we're going to get to see it. But specifically when he says, you might be mistress of this house and kind of seeing, trying to gauge potentially how she feels about him. Uh, I just really like seeing that. I love that. For me, it has to go to our girl, Mrs. Bates. Oh. Her talking again at the end of the the series, just 
a full circle moment, a very happy moment, really relieves some of the burdens on the baits. And it's it's a great way to show that that burden has been lifted. So really, really great choice to give Mrs. Bates some lines of dialogue at the end. Best and worst things in the adaptation. Start with the worst because start with the negativity out of the way. I mean, Box Hill, but it's brilliant, but I just don't like it because it's so hard to watch. It's so well done. And I say, and carrying on to the the bit afterwards and seeing her um, go into the village and just her absolute like turmoil that she's going through. So like, it's my least favorite part, but equally it's my least favorite part because it's done so well. <laughs> I have a similar answer, which would be how mean Frank is specifically at Box Hill. Um, and just like how much he makes me not want to forgive him how how unjustified he feels um but because it's done well yeah seeing the influence that he's having on on Emma yeah yeah I was gonna say I think that there could have been a bigger bridge between Harriet Loves Knightley and Harriet Marries Robert Martin a lot of adaptations have done that somewhat book accurate although in the books they do give sort of an explanation as to how he came back into her life I think that that is one of the only things they really cut for time here and could have been helpful uh to Harriet and Emma and the way their story resolved so that would be my my one flaw yeah totally the the pacing at the end is very like tumble uh yeah it's quick it's snowballing so mm-hmm. they just kind of skipped it I really like in the 2020 Emma how they do the Rob uh the Harriet and Martin I mean throughout the film especially at the end when you see how she gets back to him I think that's really nice yeah I love that yeah. when when Harriet comes and says and my father is a tradesman and he sells galoshes and Emma says well I hope you will invite him to Hartfield and it's like very a very beautiful getting back together scene but also like one of our patrons noted when I was like they're not even in a fight anymore they were like well Harriet didn't even realize they were in a fight so yep it's true best thing in the adaptation again so many in this I think um, my funny one would be the whole Mrs. Churchill dying bit when they're all like, oh, my gosh. Oh, but no, we have to be sad. Just that whole scene with everyone's reaction, including John Knightley's very like, why do we have to be sad? Um, is, is so great. But then I think my my sweet favorite part, I think, is when Emma's leaving for her honeymoon and that little interaction between her father. I think it's so, so sweet, really sums up their relationship. And I say it's been so done so well throughout the series. And I can really relate relate to the pain that, you know, of, yes, he's sad that she's leaving, but equally Emma's going to be sad because it's an end of an era. Even though she's coming back in two weeks and we still live in the house, it's still going to be different. And I think she knows that. And um, yeah, I think that was such a cute little few minutes. Yeah, I agree with that. I'll be basic and give it to the proposal scene. Hard to beat. I'm going to give it to surprising Emma with the C. I'm an ocean girl myself, and it's just ah, uh, just such a good moment. Really, like you feel like she's ah, uh, she's found the man, and he's gonna take care of her, and he's gonna make sure she sees the world, even like while she takes care of her father. It's so good. So that's my favorite. Who wins the miniseries? So I alluded to it at one point. I love shot wise. I absolutely love that shot post Box Hill where she wakes up. Sun streaming in like silhouette, dramatic music, really lovely shot. I think in this in this episode, um, Ramalagari has it for me. I think because you see the sort of conclusion of her character arc and just seeing that gradient you know, to the peak up at Box Hill and her recovering from that, 
and her cat, you see her character growth, her maturity, and she goes through such a range of emotions. And I think she, that whole episode with all the different things that happen in it, which a lot happens in one episode, I think is is just, she's just brilliant. She's brilliant. She really is. She's a perfect Emma. Um, for this episode, I have to give it to Michael Gambon as Mr. Woodhouse. Um, he's just so perfect. It would be easy to make a caricature of Mr. Woodhouse, but I think that this adaptation shows him as a full human being with character depth and range. And he's funny, but you feel terrible for him and you have so much love for him. So I just think that he really stole the show. Um, And then overall, I just want to give a shout out to the music. I think that throughout the whole miniseries, the music has been phenomenal. It just lends itself so well, yeah, to the scenes, um, the cello, everything. I'm always using the music on like my reels on Instagram because I love it so much. Yeah, such good music. I will round out the Trinity and give this win to Johnny Lee Miller to be a total dreamboat nightly in a very understated way, which is very difficult to do. He's not like sweeping or hyper sexy. He's just you know, makes being sturdy and there and her friend so romantic. And that is so powerful in this adaptation. All right. This concludes our coverage of the 2009 miniseries version of Emma. Thank you so much, listeners. For next time, you're going to have to get a little bit clueless. But um, because we are finally covering clueless, the very, very famous modern day Emma adaptation. And Sophie, thank you so much for uh, joining us for this episode. Do you want to tell the people where they can find you? Yeah, no, thank you so much for having me. It's been great fun. So it's my favorite mini series. It's been fun to go through it and just fangirl, you know. Yeah. But yeah, you can come and find me on most socials, particularly Instagram, Facebook, under Laughing with Lizzie. All my information there about my about my books and everything is is there and come say hi. Awesome. Excellent. Yeah, so this has been so much fun. Thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, stay proper. And find yourself someone who will surprise you with the sea. Yeah. Yeah. Pod and Prejudice is edited by Molly Burdick and audio produced by Graham Cook. Our show art is designed by Torrance Brown. Our show is transcribed by Speech Docs Podcast Transcription. For transcripts and to learn more about our team, check out our website at podandprejudice.com. To keep up with the show, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pod and Prejudice. If you love what you hear, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash podandprejudice to see how you can support us or just drop us a rating and a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.